stop by and, and uh, consider some of the passages, consider some of the words from the Apostle Paul. And uh, I was hoping to this morning connect some of the dots that have been uh, drawn already based on the last few sermons we've heard, both from uh, Jeremy and Christian. So if you would draw your attention to verses 16 and 17, Romans chapter 1 will uh, read the text and make some of these connections here. So hear the word of the Lord. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. And so my, uh, my heart was drawn to this passage and in consideration of what, we've, what we heard on Friday night and also the last couple of Lord's Days, um, just reflecting on uh, the Christmas season, reflecting on the Incarnation, the birth of Christ, and, and all of the, the hopes and promises that are brought to mind in a very fresh way. And if you remember, uh, Christian's message focused in the Gospel of Luke on a man named Simeon who was awaiting the birth of the promised Messiah. And if you recall, when, when he sees Jesus, he, he references that he, his eyes have seen the salvation, right? They've seen the salvation of the Lord, and so he was able to, to pass away in peace. Talking about that, that anticipation, that, that longing for the promises of God to come to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ, and what a hope-fulfilled that is, and what a joy to the heart that brings. Jeremy also talked about Isaiah 9, focusing on really the background of Isaiah 9, verses 6-7. through 7. He titled his message, if I remember this correctly, Judgment Swaddled in Hope. That Christ coming to earth was in fact an act of judgment in, in several ways, but also the fact that it was hope expressed. Hope for mankind, and that our real only hope was being born. was coming to earth offering us the ultimate hope of salvation. So in light of those things, we talk about those things that lead up to the birth of Christ. Those things that foretell of His coming and some of what He will accomplish. You think about, about Isaiah 9, uh, verses 6 and 7, about the government being on His shoulders, wonderful Counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All those things that Jesus will exemplify, right? And then we talked about his birth from Luke chapter 2. And so what I would like to do today in presenting from Romans chapter 1 is, is sort of explain now, now the now what, right? Now what happens after we've, we've heard from the Old Testament. Now, that, now what happens that we've, we've heard from the Gospel of Luke. What happens regarding the coming of Christ this side now of the cross? A, a, a where do we go from here? with all this hope, with all this witness of God's salvation in the person of Christ. Where do we go from here? Think about all that Christ accomplished on the cross and the fact that that is the very platform of the Gospel we preach, this Gospel that Paul mentions. Think about, again, the, the point of view from Simeon that Christ is born now I can die. And from this angle, this side of the cross, we say, yes, Christ is King. Now we can conquer. Now this is not a, a blind optimism, as some would suppose. 
Because we know that the nations are not going to be subdued ultimately by the sword of man, but will be subdued by the sword of the Spirit. That's why the Gospel is so essential to the glory of God. Because when we preach the Gospel of Jesus Christ, when we preach, when we herald the good news, we are offering hope and life to mankind. And we see that change take place when men believe. We are only going to see that change through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. And the regenerating, hope of the, whole, the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit is only going to come through the preaching of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what I would like to do today is spur you on to that. To offer some encouragement. You know, to, and I would say a strong encouragement that in light of the truths put forth this Christmas season, that we go and take up this shining light of the Gospel and proclaim it with faithfulness. It is interesting that in this passage in Romans represents one of the few times, I think out of two or three times, where the Gospel is actually defined. Where the word Gospel is mentioned, and it says the Gospel is this. The first time we see that, or one of the first times we see that is in 1 Corinthians. You don't have to turn there, but it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And Paul writes this, verse 1, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preach to you, which also you received, and which also you stand, by which also you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. And then he says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that, now here's the gospel explained and defined, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. More on that passage later. But that really is the heart of the Gospel message. So that is one representation of it where it is defined very clearly. Here is what the Gospel is. Now Romans 1, in verse 16, it is also defined. Defined with stunning clarity and even stunning brevity. Because sometimes we think about, well, what is, what is the gospel message, right? What does the gospel say? Because we understand it is, it is the good news, but the good news of what? What, what? what is the substance of it? How are we to understand it without minimizing it or truncating it? But Paul says it here. So if someone asks you, what is the gospel? You can look at them and say, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That is what the gospel is. What a great entry point. What a great platform. And you can explain all the implications. But first and foremost, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. So we're not just dealing with a message, right? We're not just dealing merely with words on a page or a message spoken. We're dealing with power, right? We're dealing with God's power. Not just any old power, but a, but a divine power. I was uh, considering this in a very interesting way, actually, yesterday, um, as it pertains to power and you know things th- things concerning even Christmas and even even things that seem insignificant on the whole. They're significant to our kids, but we you know as we as we grow and mature in Christ, perhaps we put less of a premium uh, on those things. And that is what I what I refer to is the subtle art of tearing open our Christmas presents. And there's a great excitement behind it. And I was as watching my, my kids enjoy their gifts, I was I was thinking about 
about the 1980s. I'm a child of the 80s. I was born in 1980, and, and the 80s were a great time to be alive, and you know, we were never considering the fact that there were uh, thousands of nuclear weapons aimed at us from the USSR. You know, we were kind of in blissful ignorance. But I was thinking about you know, the, the things we purchase for our kids, and then I thought about my own childhood, and I thought, man, we had, we had the coolest toys. We had the coolest things to play with. And I never realized at the time, but I think of the, I think of the, things, the things that my parents bought me for me to play with and enjoy. Now I think, you know, play with and enjoy to the glory of God, hopefully, so it's not just an, another object to line my closet with or to find under my bed at some point. But thinking of the, of the gifts that were given and how so much of those things represented this conflict of power between the power of good and the power of evil. Let me name three of the classics. And if any of you were children of the 80s, hopefully you'll get this and appreciate this. We had Transformers, Morven Meets the Eye, Robots in Disguise. But what was going on there? This epic battle between good and evil. The, 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 the Autobot forces led by Optimus Prime, the good guy, right? In perpetual combat against Megatron and his Decepticon minions. This was, there was a real battle here. Good was defined clearly, and evil was defined clearly. Good cherished freedom. Right. Good was the side of light. Good represented what was good for others. Right. There, was a, there was a clear description of what represented the good. And it's really interesting because in, in hindsight, you realize how much something like Something so materialistic as toys actually hijacked the Christian worldview. We were playing with the Christian worldview. There was good, clearly defined, and there was evil. Good wanted to set, the, set people free and enjoy life. Evil wanted to oppress and enslave. Evil brought darkness, right? So you had good, evil, light and darkness, freedom and slavery. You had G.I. Joe. That was another one. G.I. Joe, a real American hero. Against, listen to this, the Cobra Commander. Cobra, the global terrorist organization that was trying to enslave all of humanity. And through the likes of Duke and Flint and Roadblock, they were always counteracting the evil ploy of Cobra Commander, in a sense to crush the head of the serpent. Good and evil. But always at battle, right? Always that conflict was always there. This perhaps is the best one. He-Man. Yes, He-Man. <laughs> the most powerful man in the universe, right? Defender of Castle Grayskull. Wielder of the sword, the sword, right? And when he pulled the sword from its sheath, what did he say? By the power of Grayskull, I have the power, right? So there was a clear recognition that he had a power to wield, a power of goodness to wield against Skeletor, right? Walking animated skeleton guy, clearly representing death. But he was always foiling Skeletor's plan, chasing him away. But isn't that amazing? That we were using toys, the materialistic things, right? But even these little toys had backstories that, in, in their own way, hijacked the Christian worldview to present to us this battle raging 
between good and evil. But there was power at work on both sides, but also taught us very clearly, whether it was Transformers, G.I. Joe, or He-Man, that ultimately the powers of darkness would not prevail. But the power of light and goodness, however defined, would emerge victorious. Now we have the Holy Scriptures so we can define those things. We understand that there is a power that is good, but it is good because it comes from God. There is a power of light, but it is light because it comes from God. So we understand it in that context. It's amazing how helpful toys can be. Of course, I never thought about this when I was a kid, but it seems all the more profound to me that that, that, that view was at work even in the silliest of things. But we were reminded, it's great being reminded as a, even a young boy that evil would not prevail. That good would ultimately remain victorious. But we also understood that evil was meant to be conquered. Evil was not merely meant to be beaten. It was meant to be subdued and destroyed. We're not content to chase evil away. It must be put down. It must be put away for good. And when we read, when we get get clarity from the actual truth of Scripture, we find these things in such concrete terms. What is it that is going, what is that good that is going to overcome evil? What is that light that is ultimately going to vanquish the darkness, right? What is that freedom we have that will eventually free the captives? from slavery. It's the Gospel. It is the Gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And we find this this message of power. right? This message of power that subdues the enemy. We even reflect on the words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. He's trying to comfort His disciples because they know He's going to be crucified. But he says, hey, the ruler of this world's been judged, right? The devil's been cast out. He has nothing on me. We are already operating in victory. The battle, from your standpoint, is already won. But we are to proclaim continually the good news. To make Christ known. To bring the blessings of the new covenant. The good, right? To bring light into the darkness. To bring freedom to those who are spiritually held captive. And just as the Lord says of Himself, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. I would say we are. That's a long year. We are still living in the year of the Lord's favor. Because He continues to set the captives free. And so this passage today is going to describe the mission itself to bring that end. How will all this take place? How will good prevail? How will light prevail? How will liberty prevail? And that is through the Gospel. Through nothing else but the Gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So let's look at the text. Paul begins this way, and just before we get into it, keep in mind that he is saying certain things about the Gospel. Right? He says, I'm not ashamed of it. Right, Kind of talks about the attitude his attitude toward the Gospel, and then he describes it, the power of God, sort of our understanding of the Gospel. And then he talks about the righteousness of God 
being revealed from faith to faith, you could call that the, the demonstration of the gospel, if you will. How is, how is the power of the gospel demonstrated? And then he says, as it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. And there's the application of the gospel, which tells us that the gospel is not a message that is believed for a moment. It is ongoing. Right? It continues on. So with that, let's consider the, Paul, the, the, the words of the Apostle Paul. For I am not ashamed of the gospel. There's the first thing. When he brings in the gospel that he wants to preach, he's eager, he says in verse 15, to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. And he says, I am not ashamed of it. I am not ashamed of this gospel. And, and you think about what Paul is up against. From a worldly perspective, from unbelief, you would, you would conclude that if any person had the grounds to be ashamed about something, it would be Paul and his gospel. What do we see in Paul? Right? He's eager to, as he's eager to preach in Rome. I mean, you couldn't be ashamed if you were going to preach in Rome. You would cower and run away with your tail between your legs. But think about Paul, a man who was stoned in Galatia. Stoned in Galatia, imprisoned in Philippi, run out of Thessalonica. And not only that, but when he fled to Berea, those same Jews from Thessalonica followed him to harass him further. Left Berea. See, in Acts chapter 17, he preaches at the Areopagus, right? Calling all men to repent, preaching this strange new doctrine of the resurrection. And how is the reaction? Mockery. What is this babbler doing here? What is he, what is he saying? He was mocked. You know, we see all the trials he went through, you know, just beaten times without number, shipwrecked. I mean, this guy went through it, executed eventually in Rome. From a worldly perspective, he looks like an abject failure. If anyone had reason to be ashamed, it would be Paul. And yet, all of this, even combined, absolutely failed to shame him. You know, we think of things that we, we, we are ashamed at. What, 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 brings, what brings shame? Shame tends to be an expression that someone gives, and it's usually, a, it's usually an emotion. We say we feel shame, ashamed of something. But it is, it, is, it is in some part an admission that you were wrong, right? That you, that you failed to get this right. That, that, that if this were the case with Paul, he preached a gospel, it didn't work, it failed, and so he would be ashamed by it. He would be embarrassed. Another way, another way shame can come is if, you know, what, what, what we preach is tossed in the court of public opinion and, and rejected and scorned. Sometimes there's a sense in which we feel ashamed at that, right? Even though we believe it's true, we, find, we, we have the sense often that we stand alone or that we stand in such a minority that, you know, how can, how can, we, how can we persevere through this? You know, there, there's almost a, a hesitation to speak up because we don't want God's name being dragged through the mud. We don't want to see unbelief expressed. That's one of the hardest parts about evangelism. It's the hardest part about preaching the gospel. It's, it's not that we don't know the content. It's not that we disbelieve in its saving power. It's that we hate seeing unbelief expressed. And I think at our worst of times, sometimes we think, man, I still believe this. You know, I believe in a a Jewish man who was crucified and, you know, we think rose from the dead. We have, above all people, no reason to be ashamed. No reason to be ashamed. Paul wasn't ashamed. He saw the gospel at work. But, but again, why wasn't he ashamed of it? He wasn't ashamed of it because it was the power of God. It was the power of God at work. And if the power of God is at work, 
through the message we preach, we have no reason to be ashamed by it. Especially in light of what that power accomplishes. We are not to be ashamed. We are not to hang our head. We are not to shut up. And as we hear often out at Planned Parenthood, we are not to get a job. Especially if we have one already. (laughs) That's the kind of scorn we're met with. Think about it. It should strike us as strange that we who know and preach the power of God should slink back in shame. That is, the, that is a great tragic cosmic irony that those who proclaim the power of God should be ashamed of it. It is those who do not believe that should be ashamed. We are to come and preach it with boldness, right? Boldness and clarity. Paul wasn't ashamed by it, and we're, most of us aren't going to go through 10% of what Paul went through. So why should we be ashamed? But what is it that he's not ashamed of? He is not ashamed of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. Not just any Gospel, but the actual Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now remember, we've said this before, everyone preaches a Gospel. Don't be fooled. Don't be deceived by that. Everyone has in their mind a euangelion. Everyone has in their mind a, 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 a sense or a conviction of what constitutes good news. Right? What sets our good news apart other than the fact that it's true, is that it is the good news that is anchored in the person and work of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And when, when, when Paul explains it, he says, I didn't get this, you know, I didn't conjure this up. It didn't come to me from a man. It's not an earthly thing. It's a heavenly message. It came to me through a revelation of Jesus Christ. I got it from him. It is the message concerning his work. See, Christ is the substance of that message, the the very subject, its central figure. Remember, all the law and the prophets point to Him as its central figure. The Gospel comes to us, as was related on Friday night uh, by Jeremy, very early in the Scriptures. We we, we hear about Genesis 3.15, right? The head of the serpent being crushed. No sooner has man forfeit his life than when God comes to him in judgment, but also in hope, right? Yes, the principle of death is at work in you already, but there is good news that the seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. We have immediately good news, hope for the children of the children of Adam. Now we read on about this king coming from Judah. Right? All throughout Scripture, we see, we see promises of the Messiah. And we don't have to relate all of them in great detail. But just to say, there is so much foretold of this coming anointed one. And all that He will accomplish. We know that He will crush the head of the serpent. That's what we, we know that He will destroy the work of the devil. We know it will come from the tribe of Judah. But then we read something interesting as well, in greater detail. That this Messiah will be a Messiah King. He will be the ruler of the nations. We read that in Psalm 2, right? That that the Lord has set His King on His holy mountain, set His King to exercise judgment over the nations. You know, we read also in the Psalms, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand and make your enemies a footstool. We read all those things about the, the, the conquering work of the Messiah and His subduing of the nations and placing all of His, His enemies under His feet. But this is only half the story. There's more to it. Much more that we must underscore. Because we have to ask ourselves this question. 
If this is the Lord's anointed one, and He comes to reign and rule as the undisputed King of kings and Lord of lords, what becomes of His enemies? That's the great cosmic conundrum of our time, right? Of all of mankind, of history. Because of this person, this Messiah comes to rule, and there are all enemies scattered about, what is to become of His enemies? What is to become of the enemies of this king? They are to be destroyed. They are to be put down in judgment. To be scattered like chaff in the wind. We are enemies of the king. This is the worst news imaginable. That's why we read 1 Corinthians 15. Because at the heart of this message, at the heart of this coming and advancing and anticipated kingdom, is this important truth? And just, just so you know, too, also in Isaiah 42, right, we read about the anointed one bringing justice to the nations. And we would say, that's great. We would love some justice, right? Well, guess what? We're going to be judged too. We're going to fall under that justice unless we are redeemed, unless God Himself intervenes. And this is the beauty of it. This is the heart of the gospel where that comes in. Because not only do we see a conquering king, we see a suffering servant who happens to be the conquering king. In Isaiah 53.6, Isaiah is just a great book about this anticipation of the Messiah King. But Isaiah 53 talks about this suffering servant. And in verse 6 we read this, All we like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. But He will put our sin on this king, on this ruler, on this servant. That is why the Gospel is such good news. Because at the heart of it, this conquering king will take upon himself the sins of his people. And he will redeem them to himself. So that's why we go to a verse like 1 Corinthians 15. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And that He was buried. And that He rose again, thereby conquering death and signifying that His sacrifice was acceptable to the Father. Rose again according to the Scriptures. The heart of the Gospel is the good news that the King has died for His people. The Gospel is the good news that Christ died for sinners. This atonement on our behalf is a victorious one. And we read in the, in the book of Colossians how when Christ was crucified, even in that act, He made a public spectacle of all of His enemies. He disarmed them. Right? He disarmed rulers and authorities made them look like a bunch of amateurs, made them look like they had come completely unprepared for that battle. And his, his crucifixion, His victory on the cross was sure and secured forever the redemption of His beloved. That is good news, my friends. That is good news that we can embrace and cherish as well as proclaim. We find this referenced in 1 Peter as well. Where Peter says, He Himself bore our sins. Took our sins upon Himself. Bore sins that we could not possibly bear. He Himself bore our sins in His own body 
on the cross, that we being dead to sin might live unto righteousness, for by His stripes we are healed. So that word righteousness comes up, a topic that we will delve into in this very passage. That we could not just be alive, but but live unto something. To live righteously before God. You move down a little more in 1 Peter, we read this in chapter 3, verse 18. Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous. The great strange exchange there. What would, why would God do this for sinful rebels like us? But He died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust. Why? So that He might bring us to God, so that we could, so that we could be God's holy people and dwell in His presence for all eternity. But in order for that to happen, the king, the one who had rightful claim on on all of the cosmos, had to lay his life down. Sin had to be atoned for. Sin had to be judged. That's why when 1 Peter says he, he, he bore our sins in his own body, right? It was man that sinned in the flesh, so sin had to be judged in the flesh. You read in Romans 8 that that very thing occurred when Christ died, is that sin was judged in the flesh in the person of the Lord Jesus. Right? So Paul talks here of power. You think of the setting too. Talking to the Romans, right? Writing to the Romans. Rome, the seat of power. You know, he's, he's preached to, to the Greeks, right? He's preached to the culture of the day. He's, he's preached to the Jews, the, the, the apostate religion of the day. And now, he is at the center point of power. I mean, this is a challenge. There is a challenge here embedded in this text. You talk about Rome and you talk about power in the same relative paragraph, you're usually talking about the power of Rome. But what Paul is introducing here is a greater power than Rome and even a power that will ultimately put Rome in its place. A power that transcends the power of the Caesar. This is a scandalous statement. We're not talking about the power of men or the power of Caesars. We're talking about the power of God. See, this is an offense to the Roman authorities because in in, in the mind of, of, of those rulers, Rome was Savior. Rome was the light. Caesar was Lord. And Paul says, oh no, there is another power. For all the power that Rome may flaunt, we are talking about the power of God. And we unpack what the gospel actually accomplishes, we can then ask, can Rome do such a thing? Can, can Rome pull off such a maneuver? Can Caesar save to this in this way? What is, what is this power? Well, Paul goes on. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So the power, word power here, dunamis, we've sort of talked about that at greater length in, um, in the book of Second Peter in one of our recent studies. So we won't so we won't go down that rabbit trail, but that is to say this is God's power at work, right? When we, when we say dunamis, the power of God, we talk about the power of God at work when He is present. So throughout all of Scripture, when God would show up in power, typically one of two things would happen. When He shows up in power, He's either going to judge you in His power or He is going to save you in His power. Or He may save you by judging in power. But when the Lord showed up in power, many marvelous things were accomplished. And the, and the greatness of the power we see here 
is that it is the power of God for salvation. Right? It's a funny thing about power. Power is something that is constantly fought over. In our own time, we see often expressed by those who reject the gospel, try to be brief on this, but there is a, and we talk about the nations raging, right? What are, what are one of the things that na- the nations are currently raging about? They're raging about power structures, right? They're making that division between those who have power and those who do not have power. And they seem to offer no real solutions, right? But there's this constant raging against every perceived oppressive power structure, right? And unfortunately, the power structure of Christianity has been thrown into that lot. That Christianity is oppressive, even though we understand that Scripture says quite the opposite, that, that it is the gospel, the power of God, that sets us free. But I bring this up to express something that has been, I think, uh, always, always shown by unbelieving culture, and it is this, is that the gospel is foolishness. That's why unbelievers are ashamed of it. The gospel is foolishness, Paul writes to the Corinthians, to those who are perishing. But what is it to us? It's the power of God. The power of God unto salvation. We say, well, well what makes this power unique? Why should, why should we marvel at this power? Why should we entrust ourselves to this power? Why should this power lead us to worship? Because it is a power that saves. See, doing a power is the... You know, sometimes the size of a military or the ability to destroy efficiently. We think of tanks and bombs and scary AR rifles. But imagine a power that restores. Imagine a power that glorifies. Imagine a power that reconciles. See, that's what no earthly power could ever do, regardless of the power any one person or nation assumes for itself. It can never reconcile man to God. No earthly power can even reconcile God to man or even man to man. Only the gospel has the power to do this. That is why it is so unique in the fact that it is the power of God. It reconciles us to Him. It is a power that saves. And imagine all of the roadblocks that we face when it comes to being reconciled with God, to being at peace with God. We have our sinful nature. We have the fact that we are dead in sins. We have all of our rebellious inclinations. And then on top of that, we have our inability inherently to even remedy our situations, our situation. That's why we need power. It is only the power of God through the message of the gospel. Yes, the very message of the gospel itself is the power of God to save, that can overcome our sinful nature, that can give life to the dead that can give us a new nature, that can give us new desires. See, when the, gospel, when the gospel is applied to our hearts, we are born again. Born again to new life. Born again to a living hope. And all things are made new, right? We are a new creation, Paul writes. Old things are gone. New things are here. We're a new creation in Christ. And that means new down the line. A new heart, a new mind, a new future a new Lord, everything is characterized by newness. But it took the power of God to overcome that which was old and dead. 
And I love Paul's use of the presence, of the present here. I am not ashamed, for it is the power of God. It reminds us that this power hasn't gone anywhere. It doesn't say it has been the power of God or it was the power of God. No, it is continuously to the present day to everyone who believes. It remains powerful. When Paul says, Paul says salvation here, I want us to think of salvation in holistic terms. This is not the power of God into my come to Jesus moment when I am saved, right? No, this is salvation from beginning to end. Salvation holistically. Just as I said, salvation that wakes us up to new life. A new life which sees God's power continually at work. Think about that power as expressed in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 12. It says, but as many as received Him, right? It says He came to His own, His own did not receive Him. But as many as received Him, to them He gave the power to become the sons of God, namely to those who believe in His name. Right? We have power, right? A new power unto a new identity. An identity found in Christ. We are those who were born, right? Born of God. And the power of God is continually at work at us. And we'll, and we'll explore really what that looks like in, in, in the following parts of this passage. What we want to see here and understand very clearly is that salvation is not some one and done moment. God has saved us. He is saving us and will continue to save us. It's a holistic thing from regeneration, or you could say even election, to glorification. And that leads us to conclude, and I want us to remember this today, that we are always dependent upon God's grace for this. We are always dependent upon it. We can never relegate it to co-pilot, right? Co-pilot at best, and at worst, some kind of foreign invader meant to be dangled from the gallows, unfortunately. When we finally understand the power of God and the power of grace, we understand how dependent we continue to be on it. I think of uh, the way that Oswald Chambers describes salvation, that what happens when God saves a man, the first thing he does is that he makes his former life as, it, as if it had never been, right? Like that old man is dead. He's gone, right? The second thing he does that's impossible by human standards is that he makes a man all over again. He starts over, right? We're reborn. We become his sons. He does a work in us. Makes us all over again and conforms us to the image of Christ. And the third thing that he does that's impossible from a human standpoint is that we become as sure of God as God is sure of Himself. That's how Christ-like we, we become. God has no, the Lord Jesus Christ has no doubt regarding the Father's power or His saving work. And we are conformed to Christ in such a way, in the whole scheme of salvation, that we too will be as sure of God as God is of Himself. There will be no uncertainty. There will be no doubt as to the power of God at work in the Gospel and the, the greatness of grace that He gives us. So he says this, and this is available to everyone who believes, right? This is not universalism at work. Salvation is given to those who place their faith in Christ and in Christ alone. So everyone who believes 
experiences this. No one who believes is cut off. In this, we understand the surety of salvation. That if God has begun it, He is faithful to complete it. And this applies to all who believe. But then he says this, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So he gives an order of sorts here. For the Jew first. So, you've got to understand something about the Jews. They were called by God originally. They were a nation set apart. They were a holy nation called by God to be a light to the Gentiles, a light to the nations, a light to the unbelievers. They were that chosen race, right? That to be a royal priesthood. Even Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 3. He says in verse 1, What advantage has the Jew or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. Well, that, in some sense, that speaks to the firstness of the Jew. The Lord went to them first. They became His peculiar people first. They received the oracles of God first. And it's almost as if Paul stops there, but then you skip ahead all the way, I believe it's to Romans 9, and it talks about what else they were given. How else their firstness is understood. But they received the promises, right? The glory, the covenants. They received the law. They received the temple. They were privileged to, other, to things, to blessings that the Gentile nations were not, even though the Jews were meant to be a light to them and to call them to faith. We never want to think that, for some, that, that somehow the Jews were absolutely cut off. They were not to indulge in the, the, the pagan habits and the unbelief of the surrounding nations, but they were to call the nation to repent, call the nations to a true knowledge of the true and living God. So the Jews had all those privileged blessings. The gospel went to the Jews first. The gospel was first proclaimed to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Even Jesus Himself explained to the woman at the well, salvation is from the Jews. And Jesus, as the true Israel, would be the Savior of the world. So in that sense, yes, to the Jew first. But let's understand Paul's point here when he says that. He's not saying that Gentiles, most of us are Gentiles, he's not saying that Gentiles are somehow second-class citizens in the kingdom of God. Or that were less important than, than ethnic Jews. Paul will go on to say, if, if you keep reading uh, this, the word of Romans, that the whole world is guilty before God, right? That unbelievers practice things characteristic of unbelief, but the wrath of God abides on them. But then he also says, hey, well, what about you Jews who tell the Gentiles, the unbelievers, not to do these things, but you practice them too, right? Greater is your condemnation because you knew. You knew the truth and you still rejected it. So all the world is guilty of sin. All have fallen short of the glory of God. And that goes on to the second thing. Salvation, the gospel, the power of God going, going forth would never be confined to Israel. It was always meant to go to the nations. Now listen to the words of Paul from Acts 13.47. He's preaching and he's quoting Isaiah. He says, so, For so the Lord has commanded us, I have placed you as a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. God had always designed it for Israel to proclaim the good news to the nations. And yet out of them there was only one true faithful Israelite and that was Jesus. Well, good enough. And it was the message of Him, the good news of His work that would go forth 
in power, in the power of God to save. Here's one thing we must understand too, is that Jews and Gentiles, and I would say this throughout redemptive history and even today, are all saved by the same way. God has never saved any person in history apart from by grace through faith. Anyone who has ever been saved was saved purely from God's gracious gift of salvation to them and through faith. So, so no person who was ever brought to the saving knowledge of Christ did so apart from trusting in God's gracious provision. It's always been by grace through faith. Paul clarifies this in Galatians 3.26, that you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And then in verse 29, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Who is the true Jew? Who is the true Jew? It's the one who believes. Who is the true child of Abraham? It's the one who has faith in Christ. See, that is the power of God at work. Power of God to make a man all over again. To make a man, a former rebel, his son. And to conform him to the image of Christ. That is, that is you know, behold the power of the Gospel. A power like no other. A power that gives to us by God's grace everything we need to be reconciled to a holy God. And what makes it all the more beautiful is that God in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, takes upon Himself any obstacle keeping us from fellowship with God, namely our sin. He takes our sin upon Himself to be treated like a sinner so that we may be treated as sons. It's the power of God is salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek See, the grace of God is global in its impact. It goes everywhere and meant to go to all of the nations. Right? So God saves us. Saves us from spiritual darkness. Saves us from sin. Saves us from wrath. Saves us from idolatry. Sin's penalty. Power. Presence. It's a holistic salvation in view. And I think one of the most relieving things that we find and what makes this good news is that God saves us from Himself. God saves us from Himself, by Himself, and for Himself. We have nothing to be ashamed of, friends, in, in light of that truth. We're only ashamed if the Gospel is false, right? <laughs> the only time we should feel ashamed is if we fall into unbelief or apostatize. Because how could we neglect so great of a salvation? We only need to be ashamed if we act the hypocrite, if we deny its power, right? While claiming to partake of it. Because what do we do as those who believe? We demonstrate by faith the power of God at work. So let us not walk in hypocrisy. Let us walk in truth. So verse 17. Get through this. So notice Paul says beginning in verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God. Right? Then he says, for in it. Right? For in it the righteousness of God is revealed. So there's the demonstration. How is this how is this power demonstrated? It says, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. This is how we know it's the power of God. This is how we know it's real righteousness as opposed to a counterfeit righteousness. This is something, friends, that we, we need to stay true to. The fact that God has given us a real righteousness. Remember, as people remain in unbelief, what they generally and inevitably fly toward are counterfeits. As if it's written in their spiritual DNA that they need this, right? 
that, they, that, that the world by and large values righteousness, knows that there is a concept of righteousness. But once they reject the Christian worldview on what righteousness is, they will automatically flock to a counterfeit righteousness. We've known it through many things throughout history. Today we call it virtue signaling. I think in some sense virtue signaling is an expression by the world of sort of a perverse desperation to characterize goodness. To show that they are good and likable and admirable, but they're not like those other people over there. See, if we are truly not ashamed of the power of the gospel, we are to rest in the genuine righteousness of Jesus Christ and not fall prey to this counterfeit righteousness. Think of the difference as this, as if true righteousness is a blazing fire and virtue signaling is like a Bic lighter that's fresh out of butane. Right? You can keep clicking it, right? Keep clicking. You see that little spark. And you think, man, if I, if I click this fast enough and it just sparks, 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 spark, it looks like a flame. But it's not. It's not a flame that remains. It's, just a, it's a spark that is conjured in pride and in, in, in a degree of hopelessness to masquerade as a true righteousness. But this is what happens when we reject Scripture's diagnosis of our problem and of what separates us from a holy God. It's what happens when we reject Scripture's diagnosis of our sin and our spiritual alienation from God and our rejection of His righteousness and kingship. We fly to ridiculous things like, you know, uh, you know there's, a, there's the virtue signal response of, to COVID, right? I have to prove I'm good or better based on my caring and loving response to this virus. It's counterfeit righteousness. There's a counterfeit righteousness that emerges to our, in, in a response to global warming slash climate change slash melting polar ice caps. I mean, it's, it's an unending list because man is trying to find a way to be righteous. It's like anything but the gospel, right? Anything but that. Because if I believe, I can't claim anything, right? If I, if I believe, I, I must be humbled. I must, I must confess that it is all from the grace of God, that it is all found in Christ. And if, that, and if that's true, I have nothing to claim. And yet, man still does that. He wants to claim something. He wants to claim a self-righteousness. Instead of turning to God and seeing the richness of the grace that He supplies alone in Christ. There's several other things. I, I, if, you, if any of you have read up on uh, stuff about the metaverse, almost kind of like an alternate reality, it's like, I wonder how counterfeit righteousness is going to emerge. Right? See, what's the, best, what's the best way to create a counterfeit righteousness? You just create a fake universe, a counterfeit universe. Get it, we've got to get away from it. That seems to be the, the next phase in the mindset of man's rebellion. But as we will ultimately find out, even though we don't see it yet, it will fail. Because the kingdom that Christ is bringing about is a kingdom in which righteousness dwells, in which all counterfeits will be put away. And I would say in light of counterfeits, there is one that we must bring to our minds because that is the most dangerous one. And that is found, that is found primarily, I believe, in the church. And it is self-righteousness. It is the most dangerous and insidious form of, 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 right, of counterfeit righteousness because it is, it is usually practiced by a person who has heard the gospel preached, 
who has heard the true righteousness of God explained and that we lack that righteousness. And that person will virtue signal as well. That person will take great pains to demonstrate that they are worthy and righteous and good. But the only righteousness that matters is the righteousness that we have in God, right? He says this, in it the righteousness of God is revealed. Oh, that the righteousness of God would be revealed in sinners. It is revealed from faith to faith. That is how the power of God is made manifest, right? In several ways, we'll blaze through these. But how is the power of, how is the righteousness of God made known? First, and probably most importantly, is one that's unexpected. It is made known in condemnation. The fact that sin has been condemned in Christ. Right? The righteousness of God is always made manifest in the sense that sin must be punished. And so in the Gospel, we find the good news that Christ has taken that condemnation upon Himself. Secondly is this, imputation. We enjoy an alien righteousness, a righteousness not of our own. Romans 4 or 5 says, To the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. This is a righteousness not of our own that is credited to our account. And then there is the righteousness revealed that is declaration. Justification, that is, that God declares you righteous through faith. Through faith alone. And then there, of course, is consecration. That is, devoting oneself to living for God. Remember, this, this righteousness that, are, that is revealed is not a static righteousness. It is an active righteousness, which goes on, to, which leads us to actually explain uh, where this is all headed, and that is exaltation, right? Consecration, imputation, declaration, consecration, or, or sorry, condemnation, imputation, declaration, consecration, and then finally, exaltation, right? That we will find the work of God in exalting creation itself into where all creation will exalt Him. So this is the righteousness revealed. So let's interpret this really quick. What does it mean from faith to faith? One, thing, one thought is that it refer, refers to each person's individual faith. right? Which would be true because in everyone who believes, yes, that righteousness is revealed for sure in all the ways we've just described. But I believe Paul is talking about this that he is talking about faith from beginning to end, right? Faith where it starts, and of course the culmination or consummation of that faith. This is why, this is why we understand salvation as holistic. Faith from beginning to end. This, my friends, is a faith that deepens. Deepens in its knowledge for God, right? It's a faith that widens. means that faith characterizes every area of life. That, that every act we do, right, eating, drinking to the glory of God, all of those things are characterized by faith. That in every action, we are trusting God. We are trusting in His righteousness and His provision. It is also a faith that strengthens in that it does not fail in the fire of persecution or trial. Fourthly, it's a faith that lengthens, meaning that it is passed on to others. Our faith is not one that is privatized, right? or just kept to ourselves. It is a faith that is proclaimed, and it is a faith that is taught. And it's all done only by the power of God. And Paul closes with this. It's revealed from faith to faith, so from beginning to end, all of life, 
the ever-deepening nature of one's faith, God's righteousness is to be put on display. See, we credit His righteousness and not our own, even though we are a new creation. And Paul, as is his fashion, draws his authority from Scripture. He says, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. But the righteous man shall live by faith. Your translation may say the just shall live by faith. Um, he draws that from Habakkuk 2.4. Now remember, Habakkuk is facing this the, the reality that the Babylonians are going to come and destroy Jerusalem. And he is reminded by the Lord, the just will live by faith. And what's interesting is in that passage to Habakkuk, what it really says is that the just shall live by faithfulness, but not their own faithfulness. This faithfulness is pointing to the faithfulness of God, or the faithfulness of the truth that God has revealed to Habakkuk. And so what Paul seems to be doing here, instead of saying the just shall live by faithfulness, because we don't live by our faithfulness, our personal faithfulness. We live in light of God's faithfulness, his, the faithfulness of His salvation. So when he says, but just shall live by faith, we understand that to be the righteous man lives trusting in God's faithfulness. That's, 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 the, that's the, the sense of that passage. It's another way of saying that one lives by the faithfulness of God. But on our end, we live trusting or resting in all of the gracious provisions that God gives us in Christ. So like I said, from beginning to end, it's a holistic thing. We place faith in Christ, and that faith is sustained by the Spirit of God, and we trust Him from beginning to end. Just to close with an illustration, when we talk about faith, remember it's a trust, it's a rest, it's something that depends entirely on God. One of the things that is brought to mind, especially in Roman culture, is their aqueduct. They built these aqueducts, these, these channels of water. You, know, you build it near a spring, and, 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 and water springs from, forth from that and flows down all the way to the Roman city so they could have access to fresh, drinkable, life-giving water. But the Romans were dependent upon the water. See, It wasn't that the aqueduct saved them. The water saved them. But the aqueduct was the channel through which that refreshing water flowed. And so faith operates in the same way in the Christian life. It is that channel, it is that aqueduct, if you will, of all divine and spiritual graces. It is not our faith that saves us. It is God who saves us, but He saves us through faith and continues to give us every new covenant blessing and grace through that faith. So when He says, live by faith, that is we do life by faith. Everything in life is characterized by a trust, a humble trust in Christ alone. And of course, it means by faith, we don't die because it, that, that channel is connected to none other than the life giver himself, and that is Jesus Christ. So in that sense, to close with this application, if we are not ashamed of the gospel, we preach it in boldness. Right? If it is the power of God, we preach it in the power of the Holy Spirit. If it's for the Jew first and also to the Greek, we preach it without prejudice. We preach it to all men. Yes, we preach it. We preach it to the transgender. We preach it to the cultural Marxist. We, we, we preach it to, to all the doomsayers and naysayers who reject Christ. We are under obligation, as Paul says. Even though it is foolishness to them, it is the power of God to us, and we are faithful to proclaim it, regardless of where they come from 
and submit humbly to the Holy Spirit as He applies the saving work and power of the Gospel to those who do not believe. If it's the righteousness of God revealed, then we proclaim the truth while walking in holiness. We are God's peculiar people, and we demonstrate His righteousness by trusting Him and living faithfully. Because we are those righteous ones who live by faith. And as God gives us the strength, let us continue to be faithful, to go forth in the power of the Holy Spirit and all of the promises that we have in Christ, and to proclaim without shame the power of God. Let's pray. Father, thank You again for Your love for us. We thank You for the Gospel. We thank You that we have the power of God unto salvation. We thank You that its power is working in us to not only experience life in Your Son, but but to continually watch ourselves be transformed, to be conformed to the image of Christ, to to be like Him, to love Him, to love You, to to walk faithfully in light of all the promises You've given us. Lord, we thank You that we are not saved by our own faithfulness. We thank You that we are not saved by our own power or strength, but that it is a different power at work. A power to save to the uttermost. And I, and I know we, and many of us are gone today, but I pray that those who may be out there listening would be reminded afresh that um, even at this Christmas time, we can rejoice in the Incarnation, but we can also focus our minds on those things which happen after. That this baby in a manger was a, was a baby meant to die, to die for the sins of your people, to make atonement, to reconcile us to you. Lord, may that uh, cultivate in us a greater love and affection for you, that we, as we live by faith, grow in our love for you, grow in, grow in a love uh, for the person who saved us, who, through whom all this all the power to salvation was made possible. We recognize, Lord, we are still dependent upon Your power, on Your strength. So may we, not, may we not be cowards. May we not be ashamed. May we not, uh, even in our times of, of sorrow and distress and even persecution uh, and rejection, uh, flee to our own strength. We have no reason to be ashamed because You are not ashamed to call us brothers. You are not ashamed of us, so why should we be ashamed of you? Lord, you say the just live by faith. Help us to live just that way. For those who believe in you here, may you refresh our faith this morning, especially as we look to partake of your table. Encourage us anew, Lord, with the truths of the gospel. For those who do not believe, Lord, may you visit them with irresistible grace. May they see the gospel as something that can no longer be considered, no longer be rejected, but something that must be believed, that must be embraced with all that they are, so that they too would be brought from deadness to life, from darkness to light, from evil to righteousness. Only you can make that possible, Lord, so we pray for those who are in here who do not know you. May your grace be on them, and may they come to life rejoicing in all that you supply in your Son. It's in His precious name we pray. Amen.